All right, guys, we're back here with another episode of the SPP, the Sports Physio Podcast. I'm going to keep it a little bit light today, just really focus. So last one, we we dove heavy on some of the research, but today Liam and I are just going to go through some of the, the practical applications and just have a really good discussion about how we can actually implement some of the force velocity profiling into our into our settings, whatever that might be. Yeah, I think it's cool to uh, learn about how exactly we'd be actually performing these things. We might have touched on in the last podcast, but you know, myself um, and Jaime, we've done some of these tests in the last week or so. And I know well, Jaime's been doing this for a little while. It's kind of my ex- recent exposure, but actually using the phone to um, find out these values, it's it's really simple. There's some things that, uh, that we've learned that makes it a little easier. And uh, we just want to make it easier for you guys to apply this stuff out there, man. So, uh, Jaime, just beginning, we talked about it a bit last time, but uh, what is it? What is force velocity profiling? So, basically, you're looking at, uh, there's, two, there's two ways you can do it. You can do the vertical, which is you're looking at a series of jumps, normally about four to five jumps with different loads, or sprinting and you're getting split times. And the, the reason why we would do this and what it is, is we're basically trying to see how an athlete is getting to that performance. So... Are they using more force or strength, let's say, or are they using more velocity or speed? And for each athlete, there's an optimal profile. And all that means is there's a perfect balance between force and velocity that will result in a faster sprint time or highest, the highest vertical jump. So if we know that, it can allow us to basically individualize the training a little bit more specifically to the athlete. And we can reassess it to see how our training's working and what specifically what it is affecting. What's it changing with the athlete? Man, this guy has a way with words, people. Let's move on to, okay, so we know what force velocity profiling is. We know that there's two different tests we can do. One to test the horizontal direction and then one in the vertical. Um, How do we go about testing the vertical direction? So how we've been doing the vertical testing, um, there's two two main methods that I've been using. So there's an app on the iPhone called MyJump. Um, really good app. And basically what you're going to do is you just use the slow motion camera to video an athlete jumping and you'll do a series of jumps. So, um, let's say like for me, I'm about 200 pounds. I would jump with just my body weight. So zero kilos of additional load. And then I'll do a jump with 20 kilos of additional load. So the bar, then I might put 95 pounds on the bar. That's about 40 kilos. So I normally do zero, 20, 40, and then one with 60. So you get four jumps on there. And then basically you just go through on the app, finding the points of takeoff and the points of landing, and then it's able to calculate it. You could also do a, uh, you could use like a jump mat or any type of like contact mat that gives you vertical jump heights. And same thing, you could plug it in on the MyJump app. There's, you could enter manually. I know like JB Marin and some of these guys have public access spreadsheets that you could use. Um, so far, I've been kind of experimenting with both in terms of using the like the video on the on the my jump. It doesn't take too long, but we also in the clinic one of the things we like to use are, are the little uh, the G flights. So basically, just a laser um, laser setup where you can get really uh, quick feedback on their vertical jumps and then just plug. So I've been doing that and then plugging the manual data into my jump to get their the athlete's force velocity profile. So that'd be so basically a series of jumps getting progressively heavier is going to be how you do the the vertical profiling. I know there is some research in the literature about like, I think they say to try to do um, just body weight, then 
40%, 60%. When you do the the profile, one thing that I've noticed that's important is it will give you an R value. So basically um, the correlation of how, or how well the slope fits those data points. You really want this like, I try to make sure that it's as high as possible. So um, for example, yesterday in the clinic, I was testing a, a high school volleyball girl with this and we did, we went through it and her first, uh, the first data points that I used for her, are, we got a really low R value. It was like 60 something percent. So basically that's saying that the, the slope that was created by the data points that we gave it only f- explained or fit 60% of the, of the points. So the data you're going to get is not, is not really good. And the MyJump app is really good. It actually won't let you calculate it if it's too low. So what I had to do for her, I had too heavy of weight. So the distribution, we were basically only getting a look at one side of the curve for her. So we just had to use a little bit lighter weights and spread it out a little bit more, which makes sense because she's, she's lighter, for example, than testing, a, testing me or someone that weighs even more. Okay, so we're jumping with weight. And I think you mentioned it. But so you can jump with a barbell. You can jump with a hex bar. You can hold two twin babies that progressively get heavier. <laughs> and you, you could really even hold just, just dumbbells on both sides. And you keep, as long as it's, you know, the progressive overload, then it works. Yeah. Right? One of the best setups I've actually seen that I need to start doing this. So I've been in the clinic, I've been using a, just like a bar in the back. And then we've been doing the squat jump version. So there's no counter movement. But um, I've actually seen someone, if you set it up with a trap bar, and then you get the blocks or you elevate the bar to where they're at like that 90 degree position, that's a really good way to standardize the depth that they're dropping to. Because it's, just, I mean, it's the same exactly every single time. So that's something that I think uh, I'm definitely going to play around with more in the future. Cool. Consistency is king. The Tiger King. <laughs> Next up, what do we, uh, okay, horizontal. So we talk about performing the vertical tests. How have we been doing the horizontal? So for the horizontal, we're using, again, another iPhone app called the MySprint app. And basically, um, you are going to mark off 30 meters in five meter segments. And you need to have a visible marker, um, a cone, sticks, something that you can see uh, when you're filming. So you're going to come uh, off to the side. And there's there's specifics, too, on the app about like the exact distance that you want to be away from it. But basically... Set up 30 meters, you need a cone every five meters, you're gonna video from the side, and then you're gonna go through on that video and basically, uh, you can basically input the split time. So again, it's using the slow motion camera, uh, and then the app is basically calculating calculating all the times. And then once you have that on there, it spits out um, spits out all the information. I think the MySprint app actually does a maybe even a better job, job than the MyJump in terms of giving you all, um, giving you all that data right there, and you have access to some graphs that kind of show like a power velocity graph and different things like that. Um, again, also too, uh, JB Marin and those guys have spreadsheets that you can take the split times from the MySprint and plug in. If you have six timing gates or something else where you can get split times, you could also just do that and then get the uh, um, get the split times and then pop that into the spreadsheet. For us, like we only have two timing gates, so we've been using the uh, the MySprint. All right. So now where we're going from here is why? So you, an athlete comes to you, what's going through your mind when, if you're thinking, do I need to test this guy's horizontal? Do I need to test this vertical? Should I do both? What are you thinking? Well, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is like logistics. So if you don't have a lot of time or space, the vertical jump profile is, is easier to get. 
Um, especially like in our setting, we don't have, I don't have 30 meters indoors or 30 meters close by. Um, so if I want to do the horizontal testing, that's going to be something where we're going to need to go to another location and we're going to have to set up markers, um, get, get it filmed, all that stuff. So it's not difficult to do, but it does require some planning. So if I'm just, if I want to do this testing, but I'm trying to do it immediately in the clinic very quickly, I can do the vertical force velocity profile in probably less than 10 minutes. Um, honestly, probably close to five minutes. Uh, in terms of like specifics, the sport that they play, I think is going to be huge. So I would say for most team sport athletes, uh, well, I take that back for, uh, field-based athletes. So football, soccer, um, anything like that. I think the horizontal profiling is going to be much more important just cause it's going to give you a better picture of, of what they actually need to do. I think for, like, I've been working with a few volleyball players lately, um, and both of them are hitters, so, like, for them, the vertical is, is super applicable, because that's, like, they're trying to elevate and then hit down, so that's, the, that's their main thing. Uh, so I think logistics is going to be the first way it dictates it, and then specificity to sport, because one of the things that I've definitely learned, and we've talked about this, Liam, through this, is there isn't as much carryover between the vertical and the horizontal as I would as I had really thought. So like, especially in lower level athletes, there is, there is carryover, but it's not uncommon to see people that are pretty good at producing force in the vertical plane, but really struggle to produce it, uh, and orient it correctly in the horizontal plane. So I think there's value in doing both. And definitely for your athletes that are running and sprinting a lot, which is, I would say the majority of sports, the horizontal profiling is probably even more important. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting too, we might mention it before. Um, but how some people can look like they're jacked and then you think, okay, they're, they're going to be high in force, but they actually have like a force deficit with this. So you can't just, uh, you can't just look at like someone like myself and expect me to have this huge force, you know, favored um, side. So it's not the case. Yeah. Um, that's, that's been interesting. I mean, we found that with me, like when I personally did my, did my force velocity profile, I had like almost like a 40% force deficit, which I think is the opposite of what both of us would have expected. So I got to get more, I think both of us need to continue getting more data on this. Um, it's something I had kind of dabbled with in the past, but didn't, I don't think I got, I used it enough to really get comfortable with it and, and feel, feel confident in like making prescriptions and, and seeing data points. So, so far, so far everyone that I've been profiling has had a force deficit with, um, with the vertical jumping. So I think that's interesting and just something I'm going to kind of keep my eye on moving forward. Cool. So now you get an athlete and you find that they have a force deficit, let's say in the vertical and horizontal direction. Um, where do you go from here? So basically what that's telling you is like this athlete's very weak. They need to they need to be able to produce more force. And when you like when you hear force, just think of strength. So for that athlete, just a well-rounded like strength program would probably be uh, exactly what they want. In this case, they're probably a uh, maybe a younger athlete who doesn't have a very high training age. So all your basic patterns, squats, deadlifts, single leg work. Um, that's that's where I would start really with that with that athlete. And then in the vertical. Um, vertical and horizontal for a velocity deficit. I think this gets a little more complicated. What, do you, what, what about this? Let's focus on horizontal first. Okay. So for if you have a velocity deficit uh, during their horizontal uh, profiling, 
Basically, you want to do, you want to expose them to uh, max velocity or work on things where they're going to be moving really quickly. So there's a variety of things you can do there. Like um, definitely just doing some, like the, the simplest thing you can do is actually working on max velocity. If they're a team sport athlete that maybe is used to doing a bunch of like short sprints or acceleration based sprints, but not really running at top speed using some uh, maybe longer sprints or like flying 10s, flying 15s, flying 20s, buildups, um, anything where they're gonna actually be able to sprint at top velocity, that's gonna be a really good way to help them. You could, if you wanna get a little bit fancier, you could also dabble with some um, maybe like slight downhill running, um, some like assisted running with a budgie to give kind of like an overspeed effect. Personally, I, I would just, for most team sport athletes, I would just start with the uh, having them do like some flying 10s. And maybe you even assess their flying 10. So if you haven't done a flying 10, basically you're going to get, I like to use like a 20 to 30 yard run up to it, just a build up. And then boom, you're going to time or they're going to just sprint for 10 yards at that max speed. So you're kind of removing that, like the stress of acceleration, giving them time to spread that out. Uh, so that's kind of how I would address the horizontal. You And again here too, like we talked about this with you a little bit, Liam, like if you have a big lack of uh, like ankle stiffness or you're, ha- you're struggling to handle some of the vertical ground reaction forces at top speed, I also think this is where using uh, some fast response plyometrics could be good. So a fast response plyometric is just something that is going to have a very short ground contact time and probably shallower angles at the ankle, knee, and hip. So think about like a low hurdle hop where you're not trying to jump 30 inches in the air, but you're focusing on really quickly hitting that ground and then popping off of it, getting over the next hurdle. Uh, so minimizing time on ground versus vertical displacement. Yeah, so. I, think, I think with me, um, I can feel it. Um, I know I'm developing enough force. I'm developing a lot of force through my hips. But when I'm going to bring, push that force into the ground, I can tell my ankles are a limiting factor. So I think there, it'd be interesting to see more research behind that and just seeing more more bodies if we just improve ankle strength and that uh that what's the word i'm looking for that quick uh house oh stiffness of the ankle yeah if you just get the ankle stiff maybe you're more able to transfer that force for um, sure and that's where like for you the uh the rsi is a huge is a huge assessment that I, that I like to do so that's the reactive strength index so there's there's different ways you can test that but basically it's just a ratio of um you do like depth drop off a box and then immediately jump up, and it's a ratio of how high you jump divided by um, how long you're on the ground. So it's giving you a really good idea of how much force an athlete can produce, but specifically how quickly they can produce that. So like one of the things we did with Liam when we went through his assessment, he had when we did his uh, his force velocity profiling, he actually had pretty good uh, like P maxes, like good power production, uh, especially in that vertical uh, vertical jump. Um, but his RSI was was much lower, so. That's a good, like, this is where you got to use your coach's eye and use all the data points, right? So we, we watch in terms of like Liam and we're kind of doing a little case study that we'll talk about more with him, but we've got video of him sprinting. Both him and I agreed that there was some like collapse or breakdown of the foot during acceleration and top speed where he just wasn't handling those forces as much. We had the subjective information of he can feel his ankle kind of smushing into the ground like he's not able to maintain it as rigid as he wants. We also did some um, like pogo jumps and uh, like bounding stuff to see what he looks like with that. We both visually and subjectively agreed that he wasn't as stiff as he'd like. And we used the data from the RSI to confirm that I think Liam's uh, RSI was like, your top one was like maybe 1.5 or something. 
versus uh, it, you, we want to get that. Like for, for Liam, we want that number to be above 2.0 basically. So that's where I think with all of this stuff, you got it's just important to keep in mind like it's a piece to the puzzle. So if he had a lower RSI, but we he didn't feel that way, we weren't seeing it on the video, all that stuff, like it might not be something that we put too big of an emphasis on. But if you get this data and it's correlating with your coach's eye and what you're seeing and it's correlating with what the athlete's telling you, then it's like you can, in my opinion, you can feel really confident with pursuing that kind of that intervention. Yeah, I think that was an awesome idea combining the RSI with this stuff. Um, one, I want to touch on something you mentioned before about improving uh, velocity, which I didn't really think about before. You mentioned, you know, these guys who aren't exposed to running at top velocity. If you just get these guys running at top velocity, you don't need to like overtrain them in the beginning. You just got to get them running at that top speed. Because, you know, if you don't lift weights, if you're not, if you're working on, if no one ever does like a chest press, you know, the, the law of like overtraining to get um, those demands, you just got to meet that baseline and get these guys comfortable with that before you even probably think about doing this fancy like band assisted stuff like that. Totally. Totally. I mean, I think back to like, I don't know about you, Liam, but like, I think back to my like playing career and we didn't do a ton of, like, there just wasn't a lot of top speed exposure. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I never, I, I never did flying 10s. I never did flying 15s. Like we would test our 60. So that was exposure to it, but we wouldn't really train. We wouldn't really train that way. So I think for a lot of these team sport athletes, just like, like exactly like you said, just doing a little bit of it can be, can be really powerful. And too, like there's nothing, uh, people talk about wanting to like develop force or like power or like uh, rate of force production in the weight room. Nothing you can do in the weight room absolutely nothing no matter how many chains bands how explosive like tendo unit nothing you can do is going to come even close to the velocities and the force that that you're going to experience at top speed running so i think even if you're a volleyball player and you're never going to run further than 15 feet i still think there's some value in including some top velocity work just because of the huge like nervous system stimulus for it and it's just it's so athletic because you're getting those Sprinting is all about that fast contraction and relaxation versus like in the weight room, you can do oscillatory things, but most of the time we're not, it's not, uh, you're not getting at athletes to reflexively like fire, like contract and relax, contract and relax, which is how they need to focus, which is what they need to do in sports. So yeah, I mean, I basically like, don't be scared to have your athletes do a little bit of top velocity work. Doesn't mean you need to abandon everything else. And we're not saying only do that. We're just saying like, there might be a, that might be one component of your training program and plan. Yeah. That makes me think of when you're doing, if you find someone with like a force or velocity deficit in the horizontal plane, you know, you got to find ways or things that really resemble that movement. So getting guys on one leg and uh, things like bounding, um, you know, there's definitely, if they haven't met the baseline yet, um, like someone like me, like doing so if you're at top speed there's obviously a lot of vertical force that you need to um, create so someone like me I I think I still I haven't even met my baseline yet so if I do a lot of like double leg bilateral things I'm still going to get a lot of benefit from doing the bilateral but you know down the road keep sneaking in the single leg stuff just to um, get more specific with the movement yeah I think so there's different there's different schools of thought on there I know like Cal Dietz uh, uh, he talks about in triphasic training like he actually considers double leg plyos to be more specific to running because you can have shorter ground contact times versus single leg. 
Which is, which is, I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I see, I see the point he's making. I think there's also a ton to be said for, like, single leg is obviously how you're going to run. So, like, the, the joint positions and mechanics of that are much more specific. The contact times are not as specific. So, I think, I don't know, again, like, people want to make this an either-or. And the reality is, like, why would you only ever use bilateral or only ever use unilateral? You're gonna, you want to use both. So... To me, I agree with you, Liam, like how we're doing it with you. That's that's my that's my preferred method. Start with bilateral. Give them a chance to handle those ground reaction for because what happens is, especially with a high school athlete, if they don't have a good if they don't have a good strength basis or they're not used to doing some of these things, as soon as you start doing these unilateral plyometrics, the whole reason why you're doing them to train that interaction with the ground and that rapid force production and like storage and release of elastic energy you're not going to get that because they're just going to get stapled to the ground so at that point it's like you got to go to the bilateral in, in my opinion um, but once they start to master that and they show you that they can handle the they can interact with the ground better in that position um, then that's where i think it really lends itself well to getting creative with the uh the unilateral stuff and and getting more uh, more carryover like one thing that in my uh, in my personal training, I've been doing I've been doing some bounding, and it's it's crazy to see like I'm pretty I'm pretty comfortable with, with plyos. Like I've done pretty extensive like plyo work, and it's generally something that I'm like pretty pretty decent at. I'm not a very like elastic athlete. I'm more like muscle based. So repeat efforts or like short ground contact times, I'm not as good at. And it's so it's crazy the bounding like just a right left bound is like, I can tell it's like so much force for me to overcome. And I have like a pretty good strength background, all this stuff. So, um, I, for me, at least it's just been eye opening to see like, that's a really powerful stimulus. We just need to be careful how kind of how we're applying it, making sure the athlete's ready for it. And you've been sneaking in some, uh, barefoot training. Dude, the, bare, well. the barefoot thing has been, uh, has been huge for me. Um, I think like, that that's like a that could be a discussion in and of itself, but um, I tend to be like I have pretty poor top speed mechanics, and definitely I definitely do the same uh, the classic like team sport thing. I start overstriding, pelvis tips forward, and I start getting real heavy heel contacts, and that's where like looking back on my training, um, definitely just like too too much weight room exposure and cueing on heavy through the heels, squatting, deadlifting, like. Um, so I, what's kind of happened is I think I got some crossover from that into sprinting. So the barefoot's awesome because you don't have to cue an athlete. You don't have to yell at them until the, you're blue in the face. You just get, get them barefoot. They're not going to slam their heel on the ground anymore because it hurts really bad if you do that. So um, the barefoot's really cool to just get them uh, reinforcing, reinforcing some of the positions that we want them to be in. And it's a really good way to train the ankle and that whole lower leg complex. Yeah, I... Uh... I want to move on to uh, another tool I think would be really cool, especially in the horizontal plane, is uh, using sled work. If you find someone with a force deficit in the yeah in the horizontal plane, um, there's so much research uh, that's been coming out. Shout outs to JB Marin. We got to get that guy on this podcast. JB, JB's the man. We're not talking Justin Bieber either here. <laughs> um, but yeah, sled work. So I think the sled work touches on two different things. So if you get this guy or gal with a Force deficit in the horizontal plane. There's a few things going through my mind. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a technique issue going on. Maybe they're not able to direct the force in the right direction. Like maybe they're right when they come off the block, they shoot too vertically, or 
maybe they just aren't producing enough force. And I think that's a cool thing about the sled is one, I think you're able to, you know, when you have a sled behind you, you're automatically going to have to change the lean of your trunk and your whole body to orient the forces in the best, in the most efficient manner. But also loading up the weight, you're able to develop more force. So uh, what, what has been your thoughts on sled training so far? I think the sled training, out of all this like force velocity profiling stuff, the sled training, other than like learning athletes do need to make sure they develop a good base of strength in the weight room, general means, especially athletes with lower training ages. I think the biggest thing I've learned from all this is like how good heavy sled pulling is for athletes. It does so many good things. It's a, it's a specific strength exercise. So your strength, you're building strength. Like I know JB Marin, I've heard him talk about this on his podcast. Like he doesn't view the heavy sled pulling as a sprinting exercise. He views it as specific strength work. So, um, I think that's like a, it's a really good way to build strength in the exact positions athletes are going to need. And then two, like we saw this last weekend with, with some of my sprinting, I'm someone who struggles with, I have pretty high force production levels, but my, my ability to orient that force falls off really, really quickly. So like I'm, I'm good. Like that first step, maybe even second step by, by that third step I've lost, I've started losing my ability to propel myself forward. Um, cause I'm kind of overstriding, but I don't, I don't maintain a positive shin angle. And all we did was we, we put me on the sled, got that loaded up to a good weight. And then my sprinting like instantly was way better in terms of my shin angles. So with the resisted sprinting, you're putting athletes, they can't basically, they can't mess it up in terms of the, the posture, the position that we want them to be in. And now instead of having really strong horizontal forces for one to three steps, now you might be able to get them five, 10 yards of exposure to pushing that force back in the kind of in that horizontal direction. So I, th- I think it's the, the take home point for this is like, even for um, a high school athlete that's still developing and is still working on general weight room strength, the resisted sp- uh, sled work at like 50% velocity decrement. So running at like half speed is a, is a huge tool that I think like, I, I mean, if I'm running a high school strength and conditioning program, that's, that's definitely part of our, it's definitely part of our program. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Sometimes all you hear all these fancy interventions like sled work, band work, but you know, you sometimes you don't need to get fancy and you just need to hit the gym and do, you know, get back to the basics. Yeah. And I think like uh we did uh the method Liam and I used like we just uh Cam Joss talks about it. Like a lot of this research shows that you're trying to get to a you're trying to load the sled to where you get to a about a fifty percent velocity decrement. So all that means is that let's say you can run 10 meters per second, the weight on the sled should be such that you can run five meters per second with it. You're still trying to run as fast as you can, but the weight's slowing you down. We don't have a tool that measures meters per second, so we would have to use like the MySpread or something like that. So Cam uh, Joss came up with a really good uh, practical method for this. Take your 40-yard dash time, so let's say it's five seconds, okay? Add two tenths of a second, subtract two tenths of a second to create a range, so 4.8 to 5.2, and then have an athlete run 20 yards, so half the distance in the same amount of time, and that's going to be basically be a 50% velocity decrement. So we did this, and the cool thing about that is it doesn't matter what surface or what sled you're using because it'll be it'll automatically be specific to the co- the coefficient of friction for that surface. So last week we were on grass with a sled. Um, I think for me we found like. 115 pounds was that put me at that 50% for Liam's a little bit lighter. I think for Liam, we found it was around like 90 pounds, put him right at that perfect amount. So that's a super simple way that even in a high school program, you could very quickly get athletes running at a uh, 
doing resisted sled running at a weight that's going to be really beneficial for their force production and their, uh, basically their technique, their ability to orient that force in the right plane. So yeah, it's a, it's a great tool. We're big fans. Yeah. Especially if you, when you dive into more JB Burns research and there's some other guys doing it too, but it seems like these guys getting really good results from, you know, I've seen some examples of slowing down the velocity by with a sled, 25%, 50%, 75%. And they're showing that the guys that run with 75% on these protocols can improve their speed. It's usually only from like zero to 10 meters or zero to 20. But, you know, I think in the last, I don't know, 20 years ago, people thought you only wanted to use a lot lighter, like maybe, you know, 10% slowing you down. And they're showing a lot better results with uh, using heavier weight. Yeah, it's that old, like, there's been that thought process that you're going to mess up the kinematics, the mechanics mm. of it. And that's where that's why I made the point, and, and this is straight from J.B. Marin's work, it's not sprint work. So don't think of it as like you're messing up the sprint mechanics, you're doing strength work. So you, you might see some mechanical changes. Personally, like, I haven't really seen negative, like, I don't think, like, I don't feel like it throws off the arm action or anything like that. If anything, it just, like, for me personally, it made it made my shin angles so much better. I kept positive shin angles into my fourth, fifth, and sixth strides versus before, by my second and third stride, I was starting to lose that. So I don't really think that's something that, uh, basically, the research has, has kind of disproved that. Um, so, yeah, you do the heavy sled work for sure. Yeah, I thought I saw some, there's a couple of thing, uh, studies I've seen where, I think it's been a mixture, actually. Some guys, they'll find these guys that have a, a, a four-step sit. Then they'll get them doing this heavy sled work. Or they'll just do a bunch of more strength training for these guys with four step sits. And I think I've seen a couple of studies where their velocity deficit, I mean, their velocity will actually decrease a little bit, which just the whole point I'm trying to make is if you find someone with a four step sit, yeah, you obviously want to do improve their force, but don't forget about the velocity too. You want to keep sprinkling in the velocity in like the real world. I'm sure, you know, just something to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to be... You want to be well-rounded, right? So I think that's the that's always the struggle with this stuff too. Like, you get excited about one one thing and you want to implement it, but it's important not to uh, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I guess, right? Like to make sure you keep elements of that in your in your program. And depending on the sport or the position, even um, that might influence how much of that you keep in the program. So if I'm in a if I'm a uh, defensive end. I probably need just a, like they're probably on the lower end of the spectrum in terms of how much top velocity exposure they need versus if I'm like an outside receiver and like that like big playability is, is like that's a really important part of my skill set, I might need more top velocity exposure. Still still going to do top velocity with both of them. It might just affect how, how much I'm doing with them. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, uh, that's all the questions I got for you today, Jaime. Do you have anything else you want to mention on this thing? No, I just think like, I mean, it, it's a tool like anything else. It's definitely something that uh, both Liam and I, I think, are going to continue using. And I, I'm, uh, I want to keep collecting more data because I think, I think where this could be really cool, we've talked about this before, but is like if you have, if you're working with large player populations or athlete populations, um, you can really collect this data and start to get an idea of like overall trends and see if you're your program or your system is, is producing athletes that all have the same deficits or imbalances. That's, that's like a really good way to, uh, 
to look at it. Um, and I also think too, there, there, I know there is some research correlating, uh, like specifically horizontal force production with, with hamstring injury. Um, that's something that I got to dive into further, but I clinically, I'm, this is definitely something that I'm going to use, uh, more and more with athletes in return to return to play scenarios. And I know like with that G flight too, the, uh, the RSI is huge because we talked to like way back, I think maybe like episode one or two of the pod, we, we talked about how strength and post-op ACLs comes back, um, within six months, they pretty much have their, their strength back or was it one year? It was six, six months of strength and one year they get the more of their rate of force production. So that's where like the, <clears throat> the rate of force production assess that with these profiles. And then like the RSI is a great, a great test for that to see, uh, you know, you, you may have a good vertical jump, but now when we, when we put the limiting factor of, cause that, that's the thing with sports, right? Like, and, and this is one thing that's, I think is really clicking, clicking in there for me. You know, if you ask me to do a vertical jump, I have as much time on the ground as I want for a single, single jump, right? I can load up, I can get as much knee and hip flexion as I want, take as long as I want on the ground. I can use a really large amplitude with my arms to help drive me. That's like, even if you take a sport where jumping is really specific, like volleyball or basketball, that's not how they're going to jump. So um, they're going to be like in sports, the limiting factor is always time, time. You don't have five seconds to load up, right? The, the basketball player is trying to elevate really quickly over a defender. The volleyball player is trying to get up on time to hit that ball from the setter. So looking at the RSI, it, just basically adding that element of time into it, I think is really, really valuable. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see in, in a return to play scenarios, what type of, uh, what type of data I get there and, and how that helps kind of influence some of my clinical decisions. Yeah. I'm, it really seems like this, uh, force velocity profiling is just kind of at the beginning of what they're, you know, just the beginning of life for this thing. So it'll be interesting to see down the road more, uh, you know, how, uh, how these values maybe correlate to injury. Like you said about the hamstring, I know there's been some testing for the upper body for this stuff as well. Um, and I'm excited to see where it goes, man. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging with us. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the pod. We'll be back, uh, back next week with some more content.